pray. Your majesty, I can but bow. I lay my all before you now. Lord, it's so easy to sing those words. And it's so very difficult to live them out on a Monday morning and for the rest of the week. And so we pray that your word would come to us now with power, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, with the encouragement that we need to live out your word and to do what we maybe already know we should do. So give us fresh grace, fresh power. Help me, Lord, even to speak this evening and help us all to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Compare and contrast the following two men. Compare and contrast the following two men. On the one hand, Simeon Stylites. Uh, Simeon Stylites lived in Syria in the 5th century. And he was renowned in his day for his devotion to God. In fact, he was most famed. The reason he got this reputation was that he climbed the top of a, of a pillar, a platform, and he remained there for 37 years, worshipping God. Almost four decades of uninterrupted, almost, prayer and fasting and fellowship with God. And whatever else you could say about Stylites, he was a man committed to devotion and the devotional life. So he's on the one hand, but by way of contrast, consider somebody like Charles Spurgeon, uh, the London preacher of the 18th century. Uh, He was also in many ways a man of devotion. But unlike Stylites, Spurgeon was preeminently a man of action. By his 50th birthday, Spurgeon had founded no less than 66 organizations, many of which served the poor. He typically worked 18 hours a day. He read six books a week. And in fact, he worked so hard that one biographer of Spurgeon says that the word indefatigable was invented for Spurgeon. And whatever else you could say about Charles Spurgeon, he was a man committed to deeds ministry. Devotion and deeds. Actually, throughout the centuries of the church, these two emphases, the devotion emphasis and the deeds emphasis, have often vied for supremacy within Christendom. As to which is the most important, as to which should be our focus as a Christian. I wonder what you think this evening. Well, during Jesus' earthly ministry, which we've been learning about in Luke's Gospel on Sunday evenings this year, we've titled it Good News of Great Joy for All People. It is striking that Jesus 
teaches about the importance of both deeds and devotion. Not either or, not one or the other, but both and. Jesus said, in effect, that Christians must have a little bit of Spurgeon about them and a little bit of Stylites about them. People of deeds and devotion. Now, one place where this is very powerfully taught is in the passage that we're considering tonight. It is Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. So would you please turn there if you have a Bible or if you don't, take a pew Bible and let's read together Luke chapter 10 this evening, verses 25 to 42. See if you can spot the dual emphasis of loving others and loving God, of deeds and devotion. Luke 10 from verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. 
Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Amen. Well, two fairly well-known stories, I should think. The Good Samaritan and Mary and Martha. But although they are familiar, at least to, to most of us this evening, I hope you will see tonight the high importance of the themes which underpin these two stories. And the reason I say that these are highly important is because of what comes out in the opening four verses in our passage. Many of you will have received emails where the subject line has the words urgent or high importance. And when you get that, the little preamble just grabs your attention and flags up to you that what is about to follow is very significant. Well, in the same sort of way, verses 25 to 28 are really the subject line of the whole narrative. These verses say to us up front, urgent. They flag up the high importance of what is to follow. Now, in in two ways. First of all, because they preview the content that is about to come. Jesus is having this discussion with, with the law expert, and we see that their subject matter is the two greatest commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And what was significant about these commands, what made them the greatest commandments, is that they were thought to be the essence or the summary of the whole law. In other words, if you took everything taught in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all those innumerable commands, and you you boiled them down to two principles. These would be the summary. Love God, love your neighbor. And therefore, you see, there could be no more important discussion for Jesus and this lawyer, two Jews, to be having. But as if this isn't enough to, to, to raise the importance the level of importance is raised to high, high importance. Because what we also learn in these opening few verses is that what is at stake in this whole discussion about the commands is eternal life itself. See, these two greatest commandments aren't just a matter of theological chit-chat. They are, in fact, a matter of eternal life and death. The lawyer's question in verse 25 is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer, obvious to any Jew, is to obey the two great commandments. And Jesus follows in verse 28 by saying, do this and you will live. You see, these two commands, if you could keep them, are the road to eternal life. We'll come back to why Jesus points them in this direction. It's very interesting emphasis, isn't it? Do this, obey the law. We'll come back to that. But suffice to say, this should just be raising the significance and the importance as we come to two familiar stories. Now, let's study more closely the two tales which follow. The Good Samaritan and Mary and Martha. And I want to suggest to you that that in Luke's composition of his gospel... 
These two stories don't follow on accidentally. You know, he doesn't give this discussion and then the Good Samaritan and then Mary and Martha just because he happens to put them that way. Now, these two stories expound and illustrate the two greatest commandments which they've just been discussing. So, first of all, in the first story, we learn about loving others, loving our neighbor. And in particular, we we learn that when loving others, deeds matter. When loving others, deeds matter. When loving our neighbor, when it comes to loving our neighbor, talk really is cheap. Deeds are what important. You see, we're not to be, be like what we will call the minimalist approach. Exemplified negatively in this passage by the lawyer. The religious lawyer, you understand, the the expert in the Old Testament law. This man who comes to test Jesus, he is a minimalist. Because when Jesus turns the tables on this man who was trying to test him and embarrass him, when he turns the tables and and says, you know, that's great that you know the commandments, but now you need to do them to live, this religious expert begins to feel uncomfortable. See, he's happy to discuss the theory of religious law. But when Jesus says it's really about practicing what you preach, that's what counts. He begins to look for wiggle room. Verse 29 tells us that uh, he wanted to justify himself. He must have had an uneasy conscience. And it seems that this was particularly regarding the second commandment. You notice that he doesn't ask anything about the first commandment. He must have had that sewn up in his own mind. But he does ask, who is my neighbor? I'd like to discuss the second commandment in a little more detail, you know, before I go out and do it. Uh, How how would you interpret Jesus, the, the second commandment? In particular, the word neighbor. It's important to understand here that the Jews, just listen to this from Howard Marshall, The Jews interpreted this, neighbor, in terms of the members of the same people and religious community. Jewish usage of neighbor excluded Samaritans and foreigners from this category. It's a very important bit of background to understand. In other words, it was common for Jews to to narrowly define neighbor to mean only your close family and close friends, and fellow Jews. And you didn't need to worry about those pesky Samaritans or other outsiders. Because they were not your neighbors. You see, it it was a, a minimalist approach. And it therefore lowered the bar of the law so that they could reach it. Just think about it. If you had less people to love, you had more chance of keeping the command, right? Very clever. And very sinful. And so you see, this question has a whole new edge. Jesus, what's your take on neighbor? How do you read it? Do you read it as we do? Well, let me tell you a story, says Jesus. Isn't Jesus very awkward? Uh, Especially with awkward people like this. You ask him a question, he asks you a question. And then you ask him another question, and he tells you a story. There was a traveler, and he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was actually about 3,000 feet down the way, a downward road for 17 miles. 
And while he was on his way, Jesus says this man was attacked, he was beaten, he was stripped of his clothes, and he was left naked to die at the side of the road. And he probably would have died, but a priest came along. One of those chaps holding the highest religious office in the temple, except the great high priest. But when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so also a Levite, Jesus says. You know the guy uh, working in the temple, policing it? This guy also helped organize the public worship. When he came to the place and he saw the man pass by on the other side. In other words, just pause there for a second. In other words, the priest and the Levite are minimalist too. We don't know why they didn't stop. But we do know that there were certain reasons that they had for not extending their love to this man. However, and this is the big surprise in the story, especially for the lawyer, a Samaritan then comes along the road. A Samaritan whom the Jews did not define as their neighbor. A Samaritan whom the Jews hated. A Samaritan whom Jews believed were a half-breed, an heretic sect, he comes along the road. And unlike the other men, this most unlikely of men did something about the man's need. We'll call him the activist approach. The Samaritan. It's a case study, a beautiful case study in pastoral care. Let's just look at the, the specifics of his love in action. It's the same specifics as is involved when we love people. His love in action involved his attention. A Samaritan came along, verse 33, and as he travelled, he came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. You see, you cannot meet a need that you do not see. If your eyes are closed, he was paying attention. Secondly, he had compassion. This, of course, was one stage further than the other guys got to. They saw the man too. But when he saw him, he took pity on him. And again, you see, we will, we will not be moved into loving others until we are first moved on the inside. And then, of course, his love and action involved application. Simply mean that he did something. He applied himself, his resources, his skills to this man's specific needs. Listen to this. He met the man's specific needs with the specific remedies required for those needs. He addressed his specific wounds, pouring on oil and wine and putting bandages on where appropriate. Verse 34, that's what we need to do also. And of course, as he does this, he uses his resources. Uh, Not only his money, but also, you see, uh, his transportation, which it really was. His animal, he gets off his donkey, it probably was, and he puts this man on it to take him to the inn. And then he uses his finances to put him up in a hotel for a few days. And then he says, I'm going to come back and I'll pay any extra expense. And perhaps most precious of all, his, his active love involved, fifthly, his time. 
So you know that the Samaritan had places to be also. He was traveling, possibly he was a businessman going back to Samaria from Jericho. But he tosses aside his schedule. Probably took quite a, an amount of time to tend this man, to move this man at his own pace, to get him checked into the hotel. And look, he even goes into extra time. He says, I'm going to come back in a couple of days and just make sure things are okay. And we too must give of our time. It's often the most valuable thing we can give in care to another person. It's a wonderful example of love in action. And Jesus is trying to say to this man, this is what I want you to be like. Do you you notice how Jesus has subtly shifted the focus at the end of the story? You see, at the beginning of the story, the lawyer is asking him, who is my neighbor? I want to know who, who the guy is that I should love. But by the end of the story, Jesus is saying, forget about who your neighbor is. You need to be neighborly. In fact, we actually learn nothing about the man who was beaten at the side of the road. We don't know his race. We don't know his religion, whether he was Jewish or whether he was Samaritan. The focus shifts from who is my neighbor to myself as a neighbor. As a person with responsibility. And again, he shifts the focus also back from theory to practice. So it seems to me that the lawyer was just stalling here. He was uh, trying to, to change the, the discussion because it was getting uncomfortable. Let's discuss this more theoretically, Jesus. And Jesus now gets right back onto the issue again in verse 37. Go and do likewise. Now, I said at the start, there's an interesting reason why Jesus does this. Is Jesus just promoting moralism in this passage? That's certainly the way you could interpret it. Is is Jesus telling this guy to keep the law because he really thinks he's going to get saved? That he's going to do it and achieve it? Well, of course, we know from other things that Jesus said and the fact that he preached the gospel that that isn't the case. You see, I think what's going on is this. Jesus is playing this man at his own game. You see, this guy believes that he can keep the law. That's his assumption. Okay, maybe we need to redefine neighbor a little bit just to make it more reachable. But basically, Jesus, with a little bit of help and a little bit of reinterpretation, I can do this love your neighbor thing. I can please God in this way. And Jesus tells the Good Samaritan story to show how hard it is to keep the law. That this man would have to love only and always like this marvelous example of the Samaritan. Jesus is raising the bar of the law to show that he can't keep the law. To show that we can't keep the law. In other words, this is a humbling story. And then he says to the man, now go out and do it like this. So that presumably in a week's time of walking past a person here and there, he would soon know that he needed grace. Now, that said, it's still an exemplary tale. And, of course, Jesus does tell it so that we will follow the man's example. Obviously, few of us are going to be uh, Charles Spurgeons. Let's face it, none of us probably. 
And perhaps not many of us will be involved in, in organized social action. Like the caravan, which is a very commendable ministry. But you know, all of us are called to be involved in loving our neighbor where we are. It's not a ministry just for people who have a particular pastoral care gift. We are called in our context to be good Samaritans. Uh, There's a great book that uh, would help you think about this some more. It's called um, Ministries of Mercy by a guy called Tim Keller. Uh, They've got an amazing ministry of mercy in their church. Something like 20 ministries that are just devoted to meeting practical needs where they are. The subtitle of the book is The Call of the Jericho Road. It's it's an exposition and and, uh, practical application of this story. Uh, One of the questions that he shares in the book, which I found really helpful, it's very simple. He says, ask yourself this question, who is on my road? See, the good Samaritan didn't go out of his way to find this man. He was on his usual daily route, his usual business, and he found the man on his road. Sometimes we think if we're going to get involved in this kind of ministry, we need to kind of search it out. So Keller says, just look along your road. He says, begin close to home. Think, think about your, your own family circle. And usually there's some needy person within your wider family network. There's a, a relative who's struggling financially. There's a relative who's struggling with long-term illness. There's a, a poor student within the family. Other needs like that. And then he says, think about your church. Who is on your road in church? See, in a church of this size, we all have unique connections. You have your own little pastoral network within the church and people that only you connect with or maybe know at a very intimate level. What are the needs within your circle, within your fellowship group? And don't assume that because we have a sort of pastoral care structure in this church, that somehow the elders and the pastoral team will even know about all the needs. Maybe only you know. And maybe you're best placed to meet that person's need. Keller says, think even wider than that. Think uh, about your neighbors in the wider world. Uh, Interest groups that you're involved in. Neighbors. Think about people in the office. Ask, "How how can I give my time? How can I give something of my resources? How can I give attention and application, just even in a small way, to this person's need? You know, each of us this week could do that at least with one person, in at least one instance, and begin to practice this command. And by the way, just as a little aside, this is very compelling to non-Christians. This is different from evangelism, but it certainly does bring emphasis and power to our evangelism. Someone has said that compassion is the one argument today that cannot be dismissed. People will dismiss your gospel, your testimony, and your apologetics, but they cannot easily dismiss your compassion and your love. So when loving others, deeds matter. I'm pressing on to the second story. We learn another principle. This time it's not on the horizontal, but it's on the vertical. 
And it is this, that when loving God, distractions hinder. When loving God, distractions hinder. This is a lesson I believe that we learn from the story of Martha and Mary. And it's a beautiful story. I'm so glad that Luke includes this in his Gospel. It's actually very interesting that Luke is the only writer of a Gospel who includes this story. Matthew, Mark and John don't tell Mary and Martha's story. And it's interesting to ask the question then, why does Luke tell this tale? And why does he insert it right here, right at this spot? You know that very often Luke follows a kind of chronological structure generally, but he also arranges by theme. Almost certainly this story doesn't follow chronologically. So why does he put it here? Well, here's, here's my suggestion about this when it comes to loving the Lord. You see, the Good Samaritan story might leave us with the assumption that what is ultimately important and all important is what we do in ministry, in deeds of mercy. And so he places the, the story of Mary and Martha here for this strategic purpose of saying to us that it's not all about being Spurgeon-type Christians. Now, let's look at it again in more detail. Remember the subject line, that this relates to loving the Lord, to the first commandment. And we have this wonderful example of this in Mary. I've called her the attentive approach. Because she is attentive to Jesus. Because she is focused on Jesus. Not just doing things for Jesus. Now, you remember the story. It's, a, it's something of a barn burner within the family. And Jesus, he's in Bethany. He's two miles south of Jerusalem. And he's probably heading there to die pretty shortly. But he stops off to enjoy some hospitality at the home of some friends. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, although he's not mentioned here in this story. And Martha who was possibly the oldest, she has opened her home for hospitality for Jesus. We'll get back to Martha in just a moment. But what we learn here is that Mary, Martha's sister, was also present, and that Mary was determined to make the most of this opportunity. I mean, just imagine it. Jesus is in your home. And maybe she knows, perhaps she has heard the whispers that Jesus is heading up to Jerusalem for the final time. Likely not to return. And Mary just wants to be with Jesus. Verse 39 tells us that she was listening to Jesus. Not talking, not working, just listening. And it wasn't just sort of casually listening Her posture indicates that she was also learning from Jesus. One writer explains the significance of her sitting at Jesus' feet in this culture. Mary's posture expresses a zeal to learn. And the position was typical of pupils. In other words, she was actively engaged in learning from Jesus. Most unusual, particularly for women in these days. And so you've got Mary over here and she's learning and she's listening to Jesus. 
And then you've got Martha. And uh, Martha, she's not all in one place. She is here, there, and everywhere. She is a hive of activity. We'll call her approach the activist approach. Because you see, Martha has her heart on serving Jesus. And Martha has her hands full with serving Jesus. And it is not a bad thing in itself, of course. We know that we are called to serve the Master. But you see, there are some tip-offs in the text that Martha is doing this inordinately. Twice it is underlined that she was doing many tasks. Many tasks. Later Jesus talks about the many things, verse 41, that she was engaged in. I think the idea here is that she was not just preparing a quick fry-up in the kitchen. She was putting together an elaborate meal for Jesus. She really wanted to be the best hostess for him. You feel a lot of sympathy for Martha in this story. Who wouldn't want to dish up a nice meal for the Son of God if you were in your home, you know? But you see, the problem is that she is doing so much that she is distracted from listening to Jesus. Twice it is said, again, just to underline it, that she was distracted. Distracted means to be pulled away, to be dragged away from something else. And sadly, as Jesus looks into her heart, her motives aren't right. Because Jesus says that she is driven by anxiety in verse 41. She is driven in her service for Jesus by worry, not worship. And it soon all boils over. And she comes to Jesus, verse 40, and she complains to him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work by myself? Tell her to help. Looking for sympathy. See, she's so uptight about the many tasks that she's doing. And she's not only uptight in this way, she's fuming mad that others aren't frenetically running about like she is. And they just seem to be enjoying the presence of Jesus. Leading to jealousy and anger. It's a terrible place to be. And Jesus is so gracious. Jesus could have rebuked Martha very sharply. But instead, he simply identifies Martha's anxiety. Martha, Martha. When you say something twice like that, it's an expression of affection, intimacy. You're worried about many things. And then he just gets her to think a little bit. He commends Mary, not Martha. He doesn't rebuke Martha, but he refuses to rebuke Mary, which is what Martha wanted. He says, I'm pleased with, Mar- with Mary's approach. She's actually chosen what is better. And you see, it may be tonight, it may be that you sympathize with Martha because you're like Martha. And it may be tonight that you need to hear this gentle challenge from Jesus. Do you realize that there is such a thing as too much ministry? It is too much when our times alone with God become rare or rushed. And it is too much when we even get upset, secretly perhaps, with other people who seem to work less than us. 
And we're always on the go. Don't they have things to do? Too much. This is not, you understand, a permit for laziness. But hear what I'm saying. Are, are you a spiritual workaholic? If so, a couple of lessons for you that I've just gleaned from this passage for myself this week. Lessons for spiritual workaholics. Number one, loving Jesus and learning from him is always, always top priority. It doesn't matter that you've prepared a nice meal for Jesus if he never gets to see you. Because you're in the kitchen. Jesus wants more from you than what you can do for him. He wants you. He doesn't just want your service. He wants your time. He wants your fellowship. He wants you. This reminded me of the story of uh, Christmas Day when I was growing up. Uh, Often it was around at our place. Is Christmas a theme tonight? I don't know why we're mentioning this early, but... We used to have the whole family around at our house and my parents wanted to put on this fantastic meal for everybody. And they would spend the whole first part of the day in the kitchen. And sure enough, four o'clock, out it would come and it was great. And we'd eat the meal together and then as soon as we were done, they went back into the kitchen to start preparing for the huge supper at nine o'clock. Now, I don't just mean a little, you know, couple of pancakes and a sandwich or something like that. This was as big as the meal. And we were eating it for a couple of weeks afterwards. Because we couldn't eat it. And I remember one year, my brother and I, we sort of decided to gang up on my parents. We were discussing Christmas. And we said, you know, could we just tone down the supper this year? It's really nice, but we don't see you all day. And it's meant to be a family day. Maybe Jesus is saying that to us tonight. I I hardly see you. Because you're so busy in the kitchen working. Jesus doesn't need your deeds. You know, Jesus died on a cross. You know why he died? He died on a cross because your deeds aren't enough. Because you and I fail in our deeds. He died there so that we could be forgiven and we could be made right with Him. He didn't just die to buy and purchase another worker for His kingdom. He shed His blood to buy a relationship with you. Now, I don't want to overstate that. We've heard the last point, I hope. We are to be laborers in the Master's vineyard, but being a Christian is not all about being workers. It's about being children. Sons and daughters of God. For at this point, you know the two greatest commandments, they are ranked. You notice that? They are both vitally important, but they are not equally important. Loving the Lord comes first, front and center. And on that foundation is built our love for other people. I find that when I've got the vertical bit going right, I tend to love people better. Second thing, this is something to be aware. Ministry itself can distract from knowing Jesus better. Ministry itself can distract from knowing Jesus better. If you've you've never experienced this, I'm sure you will as you get more committed as a Christian. One of the biggest impediments to your fellowship with God is your work for God. 
It's often not the bad things, it's the good things that get in the way of the best things. And we need to fight against ministry taking over. Uh, let me be practical about just how this struggle works for me. I was thinking, how does, this, how, how does this work in my own life? I'm finding these days that coming into work on the bus uh, is a good time for prayer and listening to God. Uh, after six o'clock in our house, it's too noisy for quiet times. Okay, this doesn't work. So I wait till I get on the bus. I put my earphones in to keep the noise out. And on some days it's easy and it, it's great. And I listen to a, a bit of a sermon, maybe half a sermon, and then just spend a little time praying coming in on the bus about the needs of the day, people. But what I find is that later in the week, this is okay on Tuesday and Wednesday, but by Thursday and Friday, I, I struggle to do this without effort. And what I find, the first thing I bring out of my bag is not my iPod, but my organizer. And I start working. I start looking at my to-do list that day. What have I done yesterday? What do I need to do today? Or I take out my sermon notes, such as they are, and I start to edit them and work on them. And I work all the way in and sometimes nearly miss my stop. And I think later in the day, you know, I'll, I'll carve out some time. You would think there was time in a church office to, to, to pray and to spend devoted time. But often I, I'm leaving the door at the end of the day thinking, I never got there. Now, I don't know how this works for you, but you need to beware and you need to consciously make the effort and fight against ministry taking over your worship and your devotion. Thirdly, little lesson, time spent learning from Jesus is not doing nothing but choosing one thing of great significance. Spiritual workaholics don't like the idea of doing nothing. It's not very appealing to them. And so they, find, they should find verse 42 very helpful. Devotional time is not doing nothing. It is not time out, if by that we mean a non-activity. It is a focused and rigorous and exclusive activity where we say, Lord, for the next 30 minutes, I'm yours. I'm not working, I'm worshipping, and I'm listening to you. So, a, a few lessons. Just write those down if they're helpful. If this is an issue for you, if you're a Martha, if you're a, if, uh, you're a Mary, then maybe it's the first point you need to take home and think about. What about my deeds? Am I getting practical? Or am I spending all my life just listening to lots of worship CDs? And it's just all devotion, but no deeds. We need intimacy and activity. Well, I hope we've seen the importance, the high importance of deeds and devotion. And what we need to work for is a balance between these two things. And as we strive for this, let us remember, let us be encouraged that there is one man in all of human history who achieved the balance. Jesus was a man of pure devotion and Jesus was a man of perfect deeds. In the very next story, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. Why did they ask Jesus that? Because Jesus' devotional life was so rich and they knew there was so much to learn. And he was also a man of great deeds and action. 
You read the Gospels, they're full of what he did, where he went, who he healed, who he preached to. And of course, his greatest deed of all was when he went to Calvary and he died there on a cross for all the things we fail to do and all the devotion we fail to give. He was nailed to a crossbeam just outside Jerusalem weeks after this because we could not reach the high standard of the law. And so you don't need to come to God tonight on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of His deeds and His devotion on your behalf. And as we understand that, as we believe that, let us have a bit of Spurgeon about us and a little bit of Stylites as well. Let's pray. Father, some passages of your word make us feel so inadequate. And Father, that's a good thing. Adequacy is an illusion. It's an evidence of our pride, of sin's deceitfulness. We're only adequate through your Son. And so we thank you tonight, most of all, for his devotion to you and for his wonderful deeds, most of all, for the cross. Help us now by your Holy Spirit that we might have changed hearts that have love that springs forth to care for others and that will be fiercely committed to loving you. Help us now respond as we sing together. In Jesus' name, amen.